My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back to the Let Nothing Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley. And uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year's Eve, I believe, is the day it's actually coming out on. So just uh, looking forward to that, to a brand new whole year. We're almost an entire year into this uh, podcast, which, I'm, if I remember correctly, started in February. So, hey, we're so close. I mean, we've gone through a lot already. It feels like time has just flown there. But um, if I sound a little bit off today, I should be saying... Uh, to that effect, too. Well, <laughs> I'm not in my usual recording environment. There is a cute little interloper <laughs> who has stolen my room from me. Uh, that being, of course, my niece, my uh, brother and sister-in-law are in town and brought little Maven with them. So to give them a larger space to be in to help with the baby, I gave up my room on the third floor so that they could you know, have all that. So if I sound off, the quality's bad. It's not Joshua's fault. It's just me not being in the place where I'm not normally at. So apologies for that. If it sounds bad, if it doesn't sound bad, I'm talking about nonsense. And you should shut up, Christian, get moving on. And I will. <laughs> and I, I will do so uh, by going into Genesis 14 and 15 today, starting with verse uh, verses 1 through 7. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Ched, goodness gracious, Chedor Laomer, I practiced this so many times, guys, I promise, king of Elam, and title king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, uh, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddam, that is the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedor Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shaveh, Kiriathaim. <laughs> And the Horites in their hill, in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. I swear, guys, I swear I practiced those to, vocally uh, and mentally, and I still screwed them up. So there's that. Uh, that's what you're going to get with a lot of really obscure names from the past that just don't correlate well to the English tongue. So what we see here is that in Genesis, we have been in an historical narrative for you know quite some time. But over the many years that we've covered so far in Genesis, we've yet to have a war story. It doesn't mean that they didn't happen. It just means that a narrative itself just chose not to focus on it because it didn't matter to the original writer's intent. Now, all over the Old Testament are historical narratives that are focused on the perils and triumphs of war. You know, we, we may think that we live in a more enlightened age, and to an extent that is true. But the other truth is that war is still very much a part of our lives even today. And like some of you out there may have heard this claim. I've heard it uh, banded around and I was, when I was doing my research for this, like 
Is that actually true? Well, unfortunately, it turns out it's not. And that claim being that the world in its entire recorded history has only been at peace for some time, depending on who's writing, from around 225 to 270 years out of the thousands that we have data on. And of course, there's plenty of time before recorded history where wars were being fought and so on and so forth. And like I said, this unfortunately is a fabrication that was intended to promote the idea that peace was possible between governments and people groups. And unfortunately, the truth of the matter is that the world has been in the near constant state of war from far before we have records and continues to this day. And, you know, I mean, for us here, uh, the listeners in America, and I know there are other listeners out there, so I don't want to negate you from this conversation, but to those listeners in America first, like we may be at peace for the most part, within our borders, but we are still actively involved in fighting terrorism across the world. While you know there are also civil wars going on in Syria, Myanmar, Ethiopia, Yemen, and Sudan, as well as the more popular to the news at the moment wars between the Ukraine, excuse me, Ukraine and Russia, and Israel and Hamas. I mean, ISIS still exists right now, wreaking havoc. Not a smaller state than they were before. But they are still no less deadly than when everyone seemed to be so concerned about them. When was the last time you heard about them? Probably not recently, but they still exist. They still cause havoc in the world. They're still killing people and beheading people and all these terrible things. But no one cares because they're not the hot topic of the day. Look, my point about this isn't to discourage you and make you think that you know peace in the world is impossible. But it is to show that war has been a part of humanity's story from as far back as we can recall and enmity between humanity itself established from the moment that Adam and Eve quarreled over whose fault it was that they were in their then current predicament and then that transferred to their sons uh, with Cain being the first murderer on earth. It is unfortunately a part of the sin that exists in the human heart is to live in conflict and enmity with the people around us. Even when we attempt to build bridges and make things better, we're still people. There's still something that's going to happen to make us fly off the handle or there's still governments that say we, we're owed this or we should have that. It's inevitable, but don't get discouraged by that. Just recognize it as a part of human history, of the part of the human condition, as part of our evil, sinful natures that we need to actively fight against. And I'm saying that all war is wrong. There are plenty of good examples of us fighting, uh, not just us, but people in general fighting against slavery, fighting against oppression, fighting against you know uh, an evil regime that needs to be toppled. They exist. But war in and of itself is something we should all be very wary of and how we conduct it and when we choose to act, uh, be involved and when we choose to say something bad about one party or another party who's involved in a war at the time, just be careful. Don't just fly off the handle just to say, well, you know, uh, I'm a Republican, so I'm on this side. I'm a Democrat, so I'm on this side. Or I am part of this uh, group elsewhere and I support them. Or, you know, I'm white, I'm black or whatever. Just think before you speak and recognize that war is a part of where we are in this broken, fallen world. Now, when we look at the area here uh, where Abram and Lot lived, you know, it's popularly known by the name Fertile Crescent. And this area stretches from Egypt all the way to Iran and Iraq. Uh, it is called so because it was land where people could actively grow better crops and establish cities in a far superior fashion to the other regions around them. Now, as such, any location within this region made a very promising target for those who could organize and rule such areas. I mean, banditry was very common. Warfare was very common. There are so many wars fought over supremacy just over Canaan alone and later on Israel because of what these lands offered to the people who could control them. 
Now, Egypt had long held a massive sphere of influence over the area of Canaan, but Mesopotamian uh, and Hittite rulers had also envied the bounty of the land, seeking dominance over it. However, while others would establish colonies over the lands that they conquered, Egypt wouldn't, for the most part, as they feared anyone who died outside the boundaries of Egypt, even if they conquered a land, they wouldn't consider that part of Egypt to be that land. Uh, They were afraid that if they died outside those boundaries, they wouldn't be able to go to the afterlife since they wouldn't be buried and mummified properly. That's just a little fun historical tidbit. It kind of has next to no bearing of what's going on here, just like what I'm about to say. Uh, this does remind me, for my uh, Star Wars Legends fans out there, of the the Siruk, who are uh, an invading reptilian force uh, in the Truce at Bakura, who basically kind of had this idea of uh, they can't conquer a land, so they use proxies, because if they don't die on consecrated land, they, their afterlife is denied to them. So that's kind of one of the conflicts there. It's really cool. Uh, check out the Truce at Bakura. But to focus once again, on what we came here for, we see that these allied kings of Mesopotamia, however, had no such compunctions as we're aware of to not send their troops to this land. And as a result, they sought to continue their dominance over the kings of the five cities and the other Canaanite tribes they ruled over. And it's a very common thing is that the uh, empires and countries and who have you would just come over to a land and say, hey, give us this much money. These are your taxes. Give us this gold, give us these, you know, uh, livestock, what have you. That way they can profit off of what other people did without actively ruling that land, just kind of being a threatening force. Like, hey, just send us tribute and we won't kill your people. But this wasn't good enough, as we'll see, for the kings of the area. So we'll continue on from there to verses 8 through 12. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, where Cherdor Leomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariat, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in, so- uh, dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Now, as we look at this story, there's a very natural need expressed here. And that's that humans want to live freely. And, you know, such was the case, too, with the five kings rallying together to be freed from the yoke of their foreign oppressors. However... They aren't the heroes of this story, and neither is Lot, who becomes a captive in this scenario. They are evil men fighting against evil men who want nothing but to exploit the people under their control. The Mesopotamians wish to continue their system of benefiting from the people's labor, and the five kings want to be free of this so that they can be the ones profiting off their people's labor. With such pathetic viewpoints in mind for the people involved in this conflict, what are you and I supposed to do with this information? Like, how can we cheer for anyone involved here? Well, the truth is we don't. And we have to realize that when evil fights evil, we don't need to take a side. We must fight both of them. Now, historically, we see uh, now we commonly see governments say that they are working with the lesser of two evils. Like um, you probably, you know, most common example of that be aware to most of the world would be, you know, Soviets versus the Nazis, where we for a time uh, allied with the Soviets to curb the expansionist and genocidally charged motivations of Nazi Germany. And one of the reasons, not the main reason, but it is a reason, a good reason 
uh, for fighting against Hitler would be because he was organizing the Holocaust and causing the deaths of six million Jews and many homosexuals, Romani, the mentally deficient and more who were all uh, slaughtered with reckless abandon. Meanwhile, at this very same time, the people we were allied with in the USSR, led by Joseph Stalin, the same exact things were happening in their pogroms and their liberal use of forced imprisonment in the gulags, which led to nearly 20 million people dying, with some scholars even saying more. Some do say less, but 20 million is kind of where like most scholars say that's about how many people died under this regime. How can we have supported the deaths of 20 million? but not the deaths of 6 million plus several other million. Now, the answer, as it often ends up as, is simple convenience. We thought we needed to deal with one threat more than the other and even allowed the other threat to go stronger by working with them to the point where with another, where another such war was seen as one that could go longer than the first. Like the Lindley's program that we had was intended to help the Soviets build up their uh, supplies as they were losing the fight against the Nazis. Uh, at the same time, we're working with Britain to fight the Nazis and eventually entered the war ourselves when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. So it's uneasy bedfellows. And we knew the whole time we're not like the Soviets. We don't want to be on their side, but they're also fighting this person we don't like, these people we don't like. So what do we do? We compromise. And your mileage may vary of whether or not that's a good tactic, where whether you're not America and the allies sold out to do such a thing. And we can sit and debate, uh, you know, what should or shouldn't have happened as far as our alliance with the Soviets during World War II is concerned. But the point remains that in a fight where evil and evil was being waged, America picked a side. Now, the Christian, on the other hand, should be adamant and do everything in their power not to make the same evil choice to support one over the other. Both are worthy of resistance. The same is true of the people in our lives. Oftentimes, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you're a Christian. You, you know all this stuff about love and you know, freedom and fairness and blah, blah, blah. And they ask us, no, even when they know nothing about Christ themselves, to be called in to settle disputes. And we may find that both sides are reprehensible. But Christians sometimes choose one over the other because of financial, political, or personal gain. This must not happen. Do not give in to temptation and resist evil as Lot has failed to do, where he has allied himself with these evil men because he profits off of being near them. And for that, he becomes a prisoner of war. We have to be mindful of this, of knowing these compromises I'm making. You know, are they for the sake of someone else or for my sake, where I get to profit off of this and be seen as, as righteous when the, the exact opposite is true? When it comes to these things, Think about your motivations and ask yourself, why am I doing this? What do I gain from this? And if it's simply to profit off of a situation and there's no love in that situation, chances are that means you're supposed to be leaving that or changing how things work. Lot didn't do that. And as we'll see later on, that did not work out in his favor. I'm going to go from there to verses 13 through 16. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his, his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsmen Lot, 
with his possessions and the women and the people. Here we have at this segment the first recorded usage of the word Hebrew, which helps designate to the audience that this was originally intended for. We are intended as an audience, but remember it had an original audience first. That helps to designate to them that they how separated from this conflict that Abram is, as he is the only one righteous in this fight. Being a Hebrew doesn't make him righteous, but the fact that he is called out as one shows who he is actually following in this fight. Lot is not called the Hebrew. He's not called anyone serving God. Like the king of Sodom isn't called that. Abram is. And Abram has been set apart by God from the people around them. Now he may deal with them and speak with them, but he is not with them. Like, look, it is called out specifically. He is allies with people the Israelites would later have to slaughter. How can he do that? Because Abram doesn't hate these people. He's not supposed to do that. He's supposed to work with them. He is supposed to be kind to them without becoming one of them as Lot has. There's a huge difference between working together for mutual benefit and working together for mutual benefit sinfully. And Abram isn't becoming a Canaanite by working together with his Amorite neighbors. He's working with his neighbors and loving on them and protecting them in a way that no one else around them is. Now, you know, the Hebrew people were expected to do the same when it came to their walks with God. But Abram doesn't use this separation as an excuse to not care about the people who are now in chains and likely to end up as slaves in a foreign land. Instead, he rallies trusted and capable men and fights for their freedom, despite knowing that none of them are seeking God. Being set apart is no excuse for the Christian to deny the world the love of God. There are no conversion stories in this story, but that wasn't the point of why Abram did what he did. We should do the same and seek to show the world love in a world that has none of it, even if that means that we don't win someone over the Christ. If that is the fatalistic outcome that we expect, then we make it so easy to stop caring and to say that no one will ever come to him. This is lazy foolishness and it never comes from God. It comes from us showing that we are being unworthy of the love we receive when we were actively working against God before he came into our lives. That is where every single one of us started. None of us started on his side. None of us are Jesus. We all started in active resistance against him, even if we at first weren't aware of it. We had to learn along the way, oh, I am a sinner. I need God. I need to be better than myself. He's the only way of doing that. Abram worked to save those who would never show him the same courtesy I just talked about. But he did it swiftly and ably because there were people in need. Learn from that and accept whatever outcome God chooses to deliver from the fruit of, fruits of your labors. If working in the homeless ministry means that you brought food to people who had no other way of getting food and not a single one of them came to Christ, guess what? You didn't waste your time. That's on them at the end when they didn't respond positively to him. If you're out there and you're talking to that neighbor who is curious about Jesus and wants to change his life and change your life and you go talk multiple times over, but nothing happens. Well, guess what? You didn't waste your time. You strengthened your own arguments and you were bringing Jesus to someone who needed him, even if they didn't respond positively. Our whole idea of just uh, success only means conversion is a fallacy and something we need to wipe out and eradicate from the church. It has no place in the church. It is not a wasted effort on your part to not succeed in bringing someone to Jesus. For all you know, 
you've planted the seed. And even if that seed doesn't grow, that is not your fault. You did what you were supposed to do. You were faithful. Abram was faithful. And not only all of that, but look at how Abram wins this fight. We don't have the numbers of these uh, four kings they're fighting against, but remember the fact that they went out and slaughtered a bunch of different people from a bunch of different tribes. So that tells me, without having the need to see the actual numbers, they outnumber 318 men at his disposal. And they've gone through a decimation wave of taking over Cain at this point in time. Now, logically, he stands no chance of victory. But Abram's hope is in God and the protection and deliverance of his wayward nephew. So what does he do? He steps out in faith, but doesn't do so without planning ahead. He doesn't just charge in blindly. Well, God would just protect me. No, he's smart and tactical about it. God is going to protect him because he doesn't do foolish things. It would be foolish for the assembled army to be marching and Abram to go, well, God's got this. And with 318 guys, go out and fight them in the middle of the day and get slaughtered. No, he comes at them at night, just like Gideon will do later on in Judges. Abram uses the night to his advantage and wreaks havoc among the invading army, causing them to lose this fight and for the people to be saved. And the same thing is called of us. We are not called to be foolish. We are not called to do stupid things simply because God is working for us. God is working for us. And the best way he works with us sometimes is to use our natural intelligence and our natural wisdom to get things done. He doesn't expect you to be a fool. He doesn't expect you to walk out there and say, God's got this when you haven't planned for anything. When you say, hey, I have a desire to start a church. That's great. How are you going to do it? Do you have all the, all the you know, files passed? Uh, you know, did you get the certifications done? Did you... You know, find a solid foundation for you need to build the church. Are there people in need of a church there? Or is there already a church somewhere and you're just making a needless divide that shouldn't exist because you just made a church because you wanted to do it? Think things through like Abram did here. Now, we'll move on from there to 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Cherdor Laomer, <laughs> I was doing so well, and the kings who were with them, the kings of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything or anything that is of yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Melchizedek is an odd figure in scripture. We are only told here in these verses, there's more later on, that he is the king of Salem, which is more than likely Jerusalem, and that he was a priest of the most of God Most High. Now, he's not specifically noted as having been a captive of the invading army and might have just been coming to the aid of the people who were taken. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't get to the mute button in time there, Joshua. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, regardless, uh, he recognizes the good and righteous heart of Abram and praises his name directly to God, showing his immense faith and worship of God. But where does he come from? No, isn't Abram, uh, aren't they, uh, Abram and his household supposed to be the only ones who believe in God right now? Well, the truth is they weren't. Now we know that because Melchizedek is right here. Now, how he came to faith, we don't know. This isn't his story. As infuriating as that is for a character to just walk up and say, hey, I'm a guy and here's what I'm doing. And we get no motivation or anything. <laughs> but I have to keep denying myself here uh, and that writer instinct to say, well, here's how I would flesh things out. Well, guess what? I'm not the one writing scripture. So I need to shut up and just let God do what God wants here. So like how Melchizedek came to faith, we don't know. But this goes to show that even before Abram made the decision to follow God, there was a remnant somewhere out in the world who still followed him. Now, this unbroken chain, however many members there were, where these members were at, we don't know. But they existed, and Melchizedek is proof of that. And that's something we should praise, that God still had someone out there in that remnant who loves him and worships him. Now, later on, more will be expounded on Melchizedek in Scripture, but for now, let us see and appreciate the fact that God has faithful followers who are blessed by him and rewarded for their service, as Melchizedek is when Abram offers a tenth of the spoils to him for his ministry. Melchizedek didn't save the people uh, <clears throat> that had been taken away by the four kings, but he honored God and he honored Abram as God's chosen. And that is something to be rewarded. That is something God looks at favorably. Now, in direct contrast to Melchizedek is the king of Sodom, who seeks to win favor with his savior by offering him financial gains so that he has some way of controlling Abram in his false sense of superiority. It's this idea of, yeah, he saved me, but, you know, really he owes everything he has to me. Like, I'm the true victor here. Like, I, just, I didn't lose in that fight. No, 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 no. Look, look, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And Abram, recognizing this, rebuffs him and rightfully called him out for his wickedness. Abram has already been made wealthy by God, and he doesn't need to sully himself by lowering himself to the king of Sodom's standards, even though this would make him richer than he could fathom to take the remainder of the loot. Can you imagine how much is there from all the cities that were mentioned earlier in this chapter that have been sacked, the people taken, the livestock taken, the money and the spoils would have been immense. But he doesn't take it because he knows what this means. He knows... This is a sinful man trying to say, that man of God, no, God didn't do anything for him. I'm the one who really gave him what he needed. So he says no, but he doesn't forget the people who have helped him. So he gives this to his neighbor, Mamre, to help further their ties and to put the king of Sodom in his place. This is a massive insult to the king of Sodom, but also a well thought out play, tactically and strategically and politically, by Abram to with a neighbor he, he is already friendly with, make that tie even stronger by giving this neighbor something that Abram rightfully deserves for what he did. We've got to think strategically like that. We can't always be thinking financially. I'm not saying never go out there with the intent to make money. That, that's stupid. What I am saying is how can we use that money wisely? Abram used it wisely. He didn't let anyone control him with that money. He used it to help people. And he wasn't doing to say, hey, mom, remember that time I gave you that money? Oh, by the way, that was a loan. I need it back. No, 
He did it to bless his friend and ally. <clears throat> now, also, uh, before we get to later chapters, there is something important here that will make sense in those later chapters. Uh, as spelled out well in Karai Rose's Foreign Saints podcast in the episode entitled God Loves Sodom and Gomorrah, the tragic tale of Eden's sequel, we see that God has immensely blessed the region around the five cities abundantly with fertile soil, wealth, and esteem that they didn't deserve. Nowhere in scripture will you see any of these people worshiping God, doing good in the world, loving one another as themselves. <clears throat> it doesn't exist. However, Knowing that they have been gifted all these things, how did the people utilize these riches offered freely by God? Well, by squandering them and living in reprehensible and ravenous sins of many types, and not the one you're thinking of, that's one of them, but it's not the primary one, including not looking after sojourners, refugees, and wanderers in their midst. Now, this is extremely ironic because oh, what just happened to them? Oh, yes. But in just a couple short chapters, we will see that the people of this region have completely forgotten about the fact that they have been rescued from evil by the actions of God's chosen and will have learned nothing from the experience. Many times, people will see God as a harsh and hateful being who kills people on a whim and cares nothing about the devastation in his wake. But this is a falsehood based on a poor understanding of Scripture. God has given everything to these people who he could have righteously allowed to remain in captivity because of their many sins. But instead, he, he actively worked to save them through Abram's actions. And what does God gain from this exchange? Five cities who continue to despoil themselves and those around them for the sake of their selfishness and pride. God was immensely patient to the people of the five cities and gave them multiple opportunities to change their ways. Remember that when we do get to Sodom and Gomorrah later on. And we'll go from there to Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God continues to promise Abram rewards for his faith. But Abram feels anguish because he still doesn't have the descendants God promised him and fears that this will never come to pass. This is a natural reaction to the reality that we see in our lives. We are promised love and protection from God, but when it doesn't appear when we desire it, we then easily become dismayed. It is okay to feel that anguish in that moment, but it is not okay to remain in it and let that turn into resentment. God doesn't get angry for his doubts. Note that. He doesn't like say, hey, you should just believe. Hey, suck it up and just believe. No, he says, I got this. What I said is going to happen is going to happen. Like I said, God doesn't get angry at Abram for his doubts, but he instead chooses to encourage him to continue on the path and even prophesies to him about how his descendants will be uncountable. This is true both genetically and spiritually. 
through Christ's sacrifice, we who have made the choice to follow him are spiritual descendants of Abram. The amount of believing Christians in this world is simply uncountable, as are the continuing Jewish people who remain Abram's descendants. God is faithful in his promises, but we don't always get to live to see them all. Abram died before his descendants spread across the entire world, but God kept his promises anyways. Now, notice here, God also counts Abram as righteous. This is astonishing and something that we shouldn't overlook. His faith is righteous. It is called out as good. The amount of people God directly calls out as righteous or people after his own heart are few in number. You know, that tells me that I should be looking at Abram's actions and seeing what I must do myself in my own walk with God. You know, this includes how to avoid the sins Abram commits just as much as I should watch his successes. You know, God calls us all to be just like him, knowing we will never be perfect, but that shouldn't discourage us. Abram was a sinner, as we've already established before, just like us, and God still called him righteous. Can he say the same about you and I? I hope so. I'm working on it. Uh, people ask me, you know, oh, you think you're a Christian? You think you're perfect? I'm like, no, but I'm working on it. That should be a response. I'm never going to be perfect, but I'm working on it. And we'll finish off today uh, with verses 7 through 21. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to bring you, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, this strange ritual segment may seem weird to us at first. And honestly, I, I had forgotten about this. It's been a long time since I had uh, gone over this verse like immensely. Like I've read through it and just moved on with my life. But like focusing on this, wait, wait a second, what's going on here? <laughs> now, <clears throat> now, but knowing the context behind why it was used should help us understand what God and Abram are doing in this moment. You know, in the ancient world, uh, contracts sometimes were made through the ritualistic sacrificial cutting and killing of animals. You know, this I the idea behind this was that the contract was so serious that life had to be taken in order for the severity of the situation to be felt by all parties involved. 
Furthermore, the parties involved had to walk in between the cut animals, which no doubt had spilt their blood in that area. This was a sign to them that if anyone broke the agreements and covenants made there, that the breaker would soon find themselves bloodied by their actions or even as dead as the sacrificed animals. For God to make this agreement with Abram shows how committed he was to the promises he made. Also, we see here that Abram expected God to literally walk down and do this physically. Abram's special relationship with God meant that he got to witness parts of God in the flesh that we don't really get to see these days. And that's something we should really, you know, see how much God appreciated him. And I'm not saying he doesn't appreciate us, but to show him his willingness to actually physically appear multiple times to Abram. In Genesis 12, God appeared to Abram seemingly physically. You know, he will later meet with Abram in person in Genesis 18. But notice also how God did not immediately appear to him to make this covenant to the point where Abram had to fight the birds of prey so that they didn't desecrate the ritual covenant. This was a smaller test of Abram's resolve. One, that he passed. So God put him to sleep and spoke with him to confirm his promises. Then he allowed Abram to wake up and witness God in the form of the smoking fire pot and a torch to complete the ritual and confirm his oath to his follower. Now, before we finish here, notice also the patience of God and how he will treat the Israelites and Canaanites. That's one thing that endures throughout the entire Bible is the patience of God acting on his time in his own way. When we expect him to act a different way, we expect him to act now. God doesn't. He acts on his time. God promises Abram descendants, but he also promises that evil things will occur to them, but that he will not let them remain there in captivity forever, displaying his unfailing love to a people who most likely wouldn't majorly give up on him. You spend 400 years in captivity and you say, well, God's going to come one day. Well, he promised he would come 400 years from now. I'm living in 270 of those in year 270 of those. And I'm like, well, why should I care what he has to say? Now, some people would be really good and say, hey, got to keep the faith, got to keep moving. And that's what happened to some of the Israelites. Others would give up and say, God has abandoned us. There's, there's no point in living right now. We're just slaves. <clears throat> but God doesn't abandon them. He's patient. He takes his time, but he gets to them. Now, so too does he display love and patience to the Canaanites and Amorites, giving them hundreds of of years to repent of their sins, which he knows won't happen to the point where he will eventually give the order to exterminate them later on. But before we get all bound up in that, say, oh, God's so cruel, realize just how long they had to get things right with him before he ultimately orders their deaths. If you don't think God is patient, if you think God is just a knee-jerk God who kind of responds when people just are upset with him or they do things he doesn't personally like, well, you haven't been reading scripture. He has given them so much time to get things right with him. He is merciful and loving, but that same merciful and loving God is also a wrathful and vengeful God. Do not mistake his mercy for weakness or his wrath for evil. On his time, all will pay for their sins. And on that lovely note, we're done with Genesis 14 through 15. So thanks for going through this. I 
I think I forgot to mention that I was not feeling my best. <laughs> it's been kind of a rough week, a fun week. Don't get me wrong, but a rough week. So I, I hope I'm not coming down with something because I would really like to hang out with my niece and I'd rather not give her anything. So we'll see what happens there. I'm going to try and get some rest after this because uh, I did take a nap, which I never do. And that's just how tired I am. So hopefully that will get past whatever this is, or maybe it's just being tired. But enough about me. Uh, guys, please, if you get a chance, leave a five-star review on your podcasting platform of choice. Just to really help us out with the ratings there. That's how people find us. That's what we get recommended to other shows. Uh, when I see that other people are positively responding to this, and I do thank all the people who have done this before, uh, wouldn't have reached as many people as we have without you, because I'm very bad at marketing. <laughs> Now, if you're interested in my fiction writing, and you can find my works at starvingwriterskill.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. If you're interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anasal Ministries podcasting network. You can contact me at letnothingmoveyoupodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music that he adds to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you on the corners to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you. Hey guys, are you interested in podcasting but don't know where to go? Well, check out Zencaster.com and go ahead and make an account there and use special promo code Let Nothing Move You, all caps. That way you can get 30% off of your next deal to go ahead and set things up so you can figure out how to edit stuff using Zencaster.com to host your stuff to get things done there. So check out Zencaster.com, use special promo code Let Nothing Move You. All right, see ya.